Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and you join me. Well, today is the 1st of November 2023 when this is being recorded, and you join me on a wet, blustery day on the coast of Lytham St. Anne's in the northwest of England. You join me on our project, which is to work together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today, We're reaching the final lap, if you like, of the book of Leviticus, and we'll be covering the second half of Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 to 23. And in this episode, we'll once again dig deep and try to uncover, well, what lies behind this account of blasphemy, a story of a young man caught between two worlds, an Egyptian father and an Israelite mother. But the question I'll be asking is, how does this episode shed light? How do these ancient laws shed light on our current legal practices and our understanding of the legal system that underpins most Western societies? How does this link to our modern day ideas, our whole concept of reverence and respect? Well, hopefully we'll find that out together as you join me on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You know, it's often said that the British legal system, well, and for that matter, the American legal system, is based on this thing called the Judeo-Christian concept. I wonder if you've ever, like me, wondered what that actually means. What does it mean when a legal system is meant to be based on this concept? What is the concept? How does it operate today in the UK, Europe even, and North America, and many other places all over the world? Well, you'll know if you've been with me for a while that we've been going together through the book of Leviticus and we've come to a passage that I think demonstrates what this is all about. Today we're going to be looking at the second part of Leviticus chapter 24. Now I'm going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter and we're going to cover a stretch from verse 10 through to to the end of the chapter. Leviticus 24, I've needed to divide this time. So we looked at the first nine verses last time, but this time we're looking at the second half of this passage. And I'm sure based on my introduction, you're probably wondering what in the world do these ancient Levitical texts have to do with our current legal system in the country in which most people who listen to this live? Well, the answer you might be surprised to hear is probably plenty. But in order to do that, we're going to have to walk through the entire passage to see what's going on. So I recommend, because we've had some very long passages in Leviticus and time's been a bit of a premium, that you follow the link in the episode notes page, which will take you through to the text in Bible Gateway, or you have your Bible open as we work together through it. I'm not going to read the entire passage at the start, but I will be referencing each verse as we go through it. But before I do even that, I'd like to put this passage in the context of the entire book. If you've been tracking with me as we've worked through Leviticus these last three or four weeks, you'll know that what we've seen so far is one chapter after another about this thing called the Levitical Law. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of that list of laws and regulations and customs and festivals, we break in with a sort of a narrative of a sort of fight of all things. So it seems that the writer, which nearly everyone accepts is Moses himself, 
stops listing all these regulations that the Lord has given them, and he tells this little narrative story about two people who get into a fight. Now, why has he done that? What's going on here? It doesn't seem to fit with what comes before, and it doesn't exactly fit with what comes after either. So why did we stop here, and why did the narrative take the segue in this way? Well, one of the things the Bible experts point out is that this book of the Bible is more than about just giving instructions. It seems that in reality, Moses was writing a sort of journal. And many believe the Lord revealed the instructions as he wrote them. And then, because the order of things that happened to Moses at that time, when there's this fight breaks out, The Lord inspires Moses to give the details of that and the instructions that the Lord gives in order to deal with that situation. So that's probably what's going on here. So in other words, the story is inserted here at this point to reveals to us very clearly that essentially this book of Leviticus, although it appears as a list of rules and regulations, is in fact a narrative work. So let's look at this intriguing little passage and event itself. Verse 10 tells us that there was a son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian father. Now that immediately may strike you as strange. I mean, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt and they'd reached Mount Sinai and every impression is that they are all Israelites. Yet it says here that there's a son of a couple who weren't Israelite, they were actually an Egyptian and an Israelite as the parents. Now, you may remember back when we covered Exodus, Exodus chapter 12 exactly, when they first left Egypt, Moses said something about a mixed multitude who came with them. In other words, there were some Egyptians who chose to come out with the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. And in this case, the Egyptian man appears to have done that because he's in fact married to an Israelite woman. So this is what we today would call a mixed marriage. So verse 11 that tells us about this specific incident involving the child of this couple, a man, this guy with an Egyptian father and an Israelite mother, and we are told the man blasphemes the name of the Lord and curses him, which leads to his arrest. Now interestingly, the passage mentions the parents' names, but not the man. So what exactly did he do? What's he been accused of here? Well, the Jews at that time interpreted and used the word blasphemy, as anyone who flippantly or disrespectfully used God's name. Now, in Hebrew tradition, the name of God, commonly pronounced Yahweh, was considered so sacred that it was not spoken out loud, and certainly not casually. Instead, they often used terms like the name, or substituted other words to avoid speaking directly the name of God. But verse 11 states that this young man has blasphemed the name of the Lord. Now, while the exact nature of the blasphemy is not detailed for us in this passage, it's very clear that he used God's name in a disrespectful and inappropriate way. And the purpose of this passage is to address his offence and determine an appropriate course of action in these particular circumstances. So it tells us in verse 12 that the authorities actually put this man in custody while at the same time seeking the will of the Lord regarding his punishment. The existing law included penalties, including the death penalty for certain defences, but this case was unique because of this young man's mixed heritage, and they needed a period of time in order to seek some divine guidance to decide how to proceed. 
mentions for the first time something that's not really seen at any other place in Scripture. It mentions detaining this man. And in some modern translations, it talks about jail or prison, although it's not explicitly mentioned in that way. In fact, this term is not in any way seen to be part of the Mosaic law. Jails and prison were not part of the Levitical or the Mosaic legal system. They were very common among the pagans around them in other societies. The main point is this passage is addressing this incident of blasphemy against the name of the Lord's. And their need to be seen to take action by this person who lives amongst them highlights the seriousness of using God's name inappropriately. Now in Leviticus 24 verse 16, it states and reminds us that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death, and this punishment should apply to both natives of the land and strangers, those not born in the land. And the entire congregation, it's told us, was responsible for carrying out this punishment. Now interestingly, this verse itself is quoted in the New Testament in John 19 where we see during the crucifixion of Jesus, the chief priests and the officers use this verse to justify their demanding for the crucifixion of Jesus. They argued that according to their law, referring here to Leviticus 24.16, they say that Jesus should die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So the connection between Leviticus 24.16 and its use as legitimacy for the crucifixion of Jesus underscores the seriousness with which blasphemy was viewed in the Jewish laws and traditions. The law needed to be consistently applied and the entire congregation needed to participate in its enforcement and this stern stance on blasphemy underscores the significance that was put on maintaining the holiness and the sanctity of God's name in the Israelite community. If we pick up the text in 24.17, it says, Whoever kills any man shall be put to death. But wait a minute, what's happening now? We began this narrative with a story of two men having a fight and the Lord providing some instructions on how to deal with it, but then it broadens the scope, saying that anyone who commits the same offence will face the same penalty. But suddenly, in verse 17, it says, Whoever kills anyone shall surely be put to death. So up to this point, it's been discussing blasphemy. It's confusing, isn't it? That's been the main focus. And then suddenly, at verse 16, 7, it switches. In verse 16, it said, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And then it shifts to this perspective. So what's the connection? Well, the answer here lies the fact that the phrase is used that tells us that this passage is dealing with the response by the whole congregation, all of the congregation. It actually mentions in verse 14 that all the congregation shall stone him. And it repeats this again in verse 16. So this passage here emphasizes that the execution or the punishment of an individual is to be a collective action undertaken by the entire community, not by individuals. In other words, taking the law into your own hands and personally Dealing with someone, whether it be on a low level or even in terms of personally killing someone, is in and of itself considered murder. So this passage makes a clear distinction between 
a legalised form of capital punishment of that time, which is carried out collectively by a society, and murder, which is always committed by an individual acting on their own. So here we have in this passage the introduction of the concept of justice and compensation for causing harm. It's a fracture for a fracture, and here that very famous, quoted, often misquoted, out of context, phrase familiar to most of us, I'm sure, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But you need to understand that this call here, even at this time, was not one about personal revenge, often the way it's used and abused today by people quoting it. It's about the administration of public justice and how it should be handled by a society, the entire congregation, not individuals. The Bible strongly discourages private vengeance and emphasises clearly for us in the New Covenant perspective in Romans 12 by telling us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We see here that the principles of governments and societies establishing laws in which justice can be carried out fairly. So the central point of the passage here is talking about the need for a community to have laws and regulations and for the community to express them and execute them, thereby ensuring that blind justice is served. So how, what about this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? That sounds very severe by today's standards, but it isn't if you actually understand it's about justice and it's about setting a limit on punishment. It might sound harsh, but embodies a deeper principle. Here's the thing which many people don't grasp hold of. This principle also, within it, signifies grace. Now, you might wonder how grace might be derived from this eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth view of the world. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture at that time, people commonly practiced revenge and excessive revenge. For instance, in some cultures, if someone took another person's eye, then the person who did that would immediately suffer the penalty of death or would be deemed to be worthy of that and revenge could be taken in that way. But here we have, for the first time in human history, a legal system, a mosaic law that limits the levels of retaliation that are allowed to take in place, taking that retaliation completely out of the hands of the individual and replacing it with a concept of justice that is enacted by the community. So what we have here is the beginning of human government. That's why I can stand before you with confidence and say that underlying a true understanding of the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the fact that there is grace there. If you parallel it to other legal codes of the time, and the main one was one called the Code of Hammurabi, which predates the Mosaic Law by some thousands of years, there was no level of justice and it was no call to apply things with uniformity across society. In the Code of Hammurabi, putting out a slave's eye even meant death, but if a noble person put out another person's slave's eye, then they only incurred a modest fine. The key here being revealed in Leviticus is the concept of societal justice and how justice needs to be applied equitably across all people. 
It's about creating an equal justice system, one that's fair for all, ensuring always that the limit on the punishment is set at a level that matches the crime. And at that time it meant if you take a life, then you could potentially forfeit your home. And if you cause bodily harm, then you might indeed receive the same injury in return. And if you cause property damage, you must restore what is lost. And in certain situations, there must be a principle of restoration plus 20% for the injury caused. So in the context of the time in which this is written, this phrase, an eye for an eye, was not excessive and would not have sounded excessive to those of that time compared to what was the norm around them. It sets a limit and says that compensation and justice must always be appropriate for the loss. It gets then into these more specific cases which follow in the following verses, which is why we in the letter passages it gets into these principles about animals and talks about if someone kills an animal they should restore it. But alongside that, of course, putting that if it is a human being, a man that is killed, the perpetrator should be put to death. So again, the principle is there. It's reaffirming and underpinning the idea that humans, human beings have more intrinsic value than animals. And then in verse 22, it continues to reinforce this idea of equality before the law. You shall have the same law for a stranger and for one from your country. I am the Lord your God, it says. A familiar phrase in the Levitical passages, emphasizing that the law again applies to everyone equally, whether they're actually a native or a foreigner. So the children of Israel are seen to do as the Lord commands, and the passage ends with them following the Lord's instructions. Now, in summary, this passage begins with a story about two men who have a fight. Remember that? One of them is seen to blaspheme God. And they take time and they seek the Lord and the Lord provides them with a principle. So let's try and think on this, try and delve into it and try and work out what are the applications of this passage for us today as Christian believers. Well, in terms of just general principles that arise out of it, the first one that must hit a square between the ideas is the importance of respect for the name of God. This passage underscores the seriousness of not blaspheming God's name. So it's about not using God's name flippantly or maliciously. But alongside that, there's also this principle of responsibility, the idea of personal responsibility and perfect justice are both taught and revealed and served here reminding us, reminding everyone that every individual is accountable for their actions and justice must be served. These are core principles in humanity, aren't they? These principles are not limited to the ancient Israelites. We may administer them a different way under the new new covenant, but they still hold the same value and relevance for us today. In the opening part of this chapter 24 and verses 1 to 9, we saw the picture of Israel as God intended. Then in verses 10 to 16, we witness a situation where those within Israel departed from that idea, leading to someone blaspheming and cursing the name of God. The dichotomy here is the key aspect of this chapter, I believe. Firstly, it underscores the message that you're not to use the name of the Lord flippantly and then it plays that scenario out for us 
in a real life situation. And it demonstrates for us the idea, the principle is that individuals must be held responsible for their actions. In a sense that every person bears the weight of their own sins. So when you come to the big picture here, I think the purpose of this chapter is to highlight the importance of a society being built upon the rule of law. Ones that were added onto the initial commandments and ordinances by Jewish tradition over the year. Simply here you have the idea that a society should be founded on a principle of law. And the additional repetition of the phrase, all the congregation, underscores the idea that the society as a whole must administer that law, that it must be taken out of the hands of individuals seeking revenge or simply just vengeance. So the principle isn't limited to ancient Israel. It extends right up to date into our modern world. And many of our nations, particularly in the West, are built on the premise that the law applies to everyone. That's what's important about this passage. That's what is being taught and still applies to us today. The law applies to everyone, regardless of their position, their background, or even their origins. Many would consider the legal system of parliamentary democracies and republics in the West to be, well, basically the best that mankind has been able to come up with. Not always applied, not always perfect, but because they're underpinned on the principle that the law should consistently be applied to everyone, then indeed the idea of justice and fairness might at least have the opportunity of being outworked in that society. I'm not suggesting that these things can't get into trouble and can't get mixed up and aren't difficult and nuanced as at times, but the principle is, and I believe still applies, that these are the way by which societies are blessed and we all might enjoy and experience security and justice together. I also believe that when we become less inclined to uphold the rule of law, less inclined to be linked to the biblical underpinning on which these things were established, then societies tend to suffer and break down. The importance of this passage, I believe, is it because it touches on the very foundation of what it means to have a civilised society. It reveals the very beginning of human government. People being allowed to have some agency in their own decision-making and their own lives, but underpinned by the way God's guidance in how that should be administrated. In other words, giving people the facility, the ability to prosper by living under the rule of law, a law that is applied with uniformity, whether you're the president or the prime minister or the cleaner. It means the same thing for everyone. If you break the law, you must face the consequences. Now, some would say these principles are being stretched to breaking point in recent times, but The underpinning of a civilised society is if you do the crime, you need to do the time. And this whole idea, this whole concept that underpins the British, the American, the European, many other legal systems around the world, well, it originates here in the Bible. The eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth thing, 
isn't talking about revenge, it's setting a limit on justice. A limit that must be consistently applied to everyone without respect of persons. And a limit that must be applied by the society and not the individual. And that fundamental shape principle shaped our legal system and upholds it to this day. In fact, it more than upholds it, it defends our societies from falling into catastrophic failure and destruction. Here, in the second half of Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 to the end, we glimpse a snapshot of this situation where the law is played out within the Israelite community and still today should guide us as we seek to practice divine guidance in terms of all legal, moral and ethical dilemmas still to this day. Okay, that's it. Thank you for joining me. I do hope you find that helpful. A difficult and challenging scripture, I'm sure you'll agree. But we've got to understand that these scriptures set the foundations in place out of which societies, under God's blessing, may grow. That's my take on it anyway. And I do hope you find it helpful. If you're here for the first time, friends, why not click on the subscribe button and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of your daily life from here on in. And if you are finding it helpful, then why not give us a like, subscribe to it so you don't miss another single episode, and maybe even consider sharing it on social media so other people may be more likely to find about it. And other people might also make the decision to make this the Bible part of their daily lives also. This podcast is available freely on all the main podcast providers and you can subscribe to it there. But there's also ways in which you can connect to this teaching and access a full episode notes page, as well as, in fact, a full transcript of everything I've said, not just for this episode, for, for each and every episode. Always freely available, always free for you to use in whatever way you find helpful in your own private ministry, personal ministry, or even in the preparation of study materials that you might be called by God to do. So take it and use it. You'll find ways you can connect with me on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. There you'll find the way you can support the ministry as well if you want. But if you want to actually be able to connect with this ministry and reach out to me, the best way to do that is to become a patron through Patreon because there's a messaging system there. And that's the place where I post regular updates and bonus episodes for those people who've committed to support this ministry in that way and make sure it stays free and freely available to everyone that would want to access us. So a big shout out to to them and a big thank you to everybody who's made the decision to join me today. And I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow for me. It's whatever day is good for you. Do this at whatever pace works for you as we together work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.